0: We pick up this morning in a unique section of scripture. If you're just dropping in with us, what we're doing is we're walking through what's been called the high priestly prayer, probably more appropriately called the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in this unique section of scripture, it's significant, one, because it comes after Jesus' farewell discourse. So for the last several chapters, Jesus has been pouring out his heart to his chosen disciples in order to be able to prepare them for his departure and comes right before the cross where Jesus actually goes to the cross for these same people. And it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. It breaks down really into three sections, one through five, which we touched on last week, is Jesus's prayer for himself, for his glory, and that he would glorify the Father and that he would be able to save his people. This week, he prays specifically for the disciples that he is leaving behind. And then next week, what he's doing, he's actually praying praying for those who believe based on their testimony, which would be you and I. So with that said, what I'd like to do is just go ahead and pray, and then we will dive in. Father, we just ask for your help, Lord, as we open your word this morning. Remembering, Father, that we are helpless apart from you. And so we come before you this morning just dependent upon your grace to give us the strength to be able to believe. We pray that your spirit would open blind eyes. You would open deaf ears to the truth and the beauty of the glory of Christ. And for those, Lord, this morning who are walking but need or I'll put it this way, are unaware of their need. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the, the, the bounty and the beauty of your grace, Lord, that comes to us, Lord, as we simply seek your face. So, Lord, I pray for your blessing on this time, Lord, as we open your word for the glory of your son and the good of his people. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It is sad, but a reality that moral failures among prominent Christian leaders has become almost commonplace. We're grieved by it. We're definitely saddened by it as we we feel the impact that happens as leaders fall and the thing and the the negative press, you could say, it brings upon the name of Christ. We're, We're asking the question, why are these people who seem to start so well, why do these people who seem to love Jesus and seem to have such a zeal for him, why did they fall? And there's been a lot of different solutions or scenarios that have been presented as the reason. But I think probably the best answer that I have heard comes from an Anglican bishop by the name of J.C. Ryle during the 19th century. And he gives this explanation. And it is rather long, but I think pretty important. So I'm going to read it in its entirety. And I just encourage you to, to give, give a listen. He says, That backsliding generally first begins with the neglect of private prayer. Bibles read without prayer. Sermons heard without prayer. Marriages contracted without prayer. Journeys undertaken without prayer. Residences chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, the daily act of private prayer itself hurried over or gone through without heart. These are the kind of downward steps by which many a Christian descends to a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows him to have a momentous fall. This is the process which forms the lingering lots, the unstable Samson's, the wife idolizing Solomon's, the inconsistent Aces, the pliable Jehoshaphats, the overcareful Marthas, of whom So many are to be found in the church of Christ. Often, the simple history of such cases is this they became careless about private prayer. You may be sure, very sure, that men and women fall in privates long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. I think Ryle is right. And I think that is precisely why Jesus prays for his followers in the way that he does in verses 6 through 19. Because what he does is he helps them see in these verses where the power for their perseverance comes from and at the same time how they, as weak individuals in desperate need, apply for or access that power for ongoing spiritual strength and vitality. In other words, his prayer shows us that a persevering people must be a praying people. Let me say this again. A persevering people must be a praying people. And so in his prayer, I think he gives us three motivations meant to move us to pray. First, because he specifically prays for us. First, because he specifically prays for us. Now, if you've been with us in John 13 through 16, then you know that Jesus has had kind of a laser focus on his particular people. He's he's not necessarily praying for the world. He's not necessarily talking to the crowds. At this point, he's talking to his faithful few. And nowhere is that more clear than in the verses that we're about to read as Jesus focuses in and identifies the subject of those he is praying for, identifies with clarity those he is praying for specifically. He says, I have manifested your Name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So here, what Jesus is doing is he's kind of identifying his ministry as manifesting, or you can use that, it's not a word we use today, but revealing. Your name, which is your name is short for the full character and goodness and glory of God. He said, "I, my ministry has been made up of manifesting, revealing the glory of God to a specific group of people. How does he identify them? He says, to those whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you have given them to me. So I want to make clear what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing here is he is describing from an eternal spiritual perspective the people of which he is praying for. This is not an accidental or a hypothetical group. This is not a group that Jesus doesn't know who they are. The Father doesn't know who they are. This is a group of people that God has called out of the world specifically in order to be able to give them as a gift to the Son. And if you interpret this any other way, then I think you take away from the definite solidity and security that is bound up in these words. These are a people chosen by God, out of the world to give to the Son. And if you ask the question, when were they chosen? Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 makes this clear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And yet at the same time, these people who were chosen before the foundation of the world, it was made clear in time through their response to Jesus. As he continues in verse 4 by saying, And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So here's the thing. Even though this people has been eternally chosen and known by God in time, it's this clear reality that they have responded to the gospel message that Jesus brings. When Jesus comes revealing, because remember he is the word of God, the word made flesh, they receive, they obey, they keep his word. And I think the thing we need to see here is how Jesus combines this understanding of his people with both believing and obeying. See, sometimes we want to disconnect these in the modern church. We want to say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but he is yet not my Lord. Or I believe in Jesus, and yet I don't want to necessarily obey some of those things he wants to do. The the New Testament and Jesus in particular have no category of people who believed and did not obey. Perfectly? Certainly not. But these two things go together. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, you would be foolish to not obey him and submit to him. If you believe that he brings goodness and is the source of all soul satisfaction and you don't respond by submitting to his good desires, then it is not true faith. And I think it's important to recognize that this is still true, that believing in Jesus, that believing Jesus, this man that walked 2,000 years ago, as the son of God who proclaimed not only that he was the son of God, but that he would forgive every sin that people committed if they would simply repent and believe, he still makes the same offer today, 2,000 years later. And so if you want to say, how do I walk with this Jesus? How do I know this Jesus? It is the same path that it was 2,000 years ago. You repent of the reality of your sins and you believe that this man was genuinely sent by God that he did what he said he was going to do, that he was genuinely raised from the dead, and that he will save to the uttermost any who come to him. And so we start the Christian life in the same way, but we also continue it in the same way. I think it's interesting to note here that Jesus assumes these people know him, that they were chosen before the foundation of the world simply because they receive his word and they obey his word. And I think it's another just encouragement for us to recognize continuing to believe and obey is how we show that we are still His. When we no longer give great desire, no longer give great emphasis, no longer care what Jesus says and what Jesus calls us to do, in what way can we say we genuinely believe in Him? Persevering faith, the people of God are defined not because they prayed a prayer once, but because their lives are marked by obedience and faith. And so then Jesus makes very clear, if he's not been unclear already, who he is not praying for, for in verses 9 and 10. He says, I am praying for them. That's back who he was, who he just mentioned. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. You see, Jesus is not praying for all people, but he's praying for his people and specifically, those whom Jesus is glorified in. Certainly not perfectly, but those who see him for who he is, who worship for who he is. And that even helps us see how we glorify him. We glorify him in believing and repenting and obeying. And I think it's just that baptism is this beautiful picture of this. We can say that Morgan and Cynthia are a gift called out of the Lord by God the Father to give as a gift for the Son. And yet at some point in history they had to repent of their sins and believe in the person of Jesus Christ. And that their ongoing continuation of this is how they make clear to the world that they are his. And even the whole process of baptism going under the water and coming back up is a sign is a picture of this reality of the transformation that has happened. And I think what I want to say to you is that when Jesus was praying this prayer, he was praying it specifically for the disciples that were in the room. Okay, that is his focus. And so you may ask the question, well, how does this apply to me today? And that's a great question. And the New Testament actually takes that same idea of Jesus' praying and helps us understand that this ministry of intercession, of coming before the Father on behalf of somebody else, is actually what Jesus is still doing for his people today. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Jesus prayed this prayer in time specifically for a group of people, but Jesus is praying for all of his people today, now, specifically. And if he wasn't, you'd be dead. Right? Like his ongoing ministry, his ongoing intercession for you is what keeps you, is what sustains you. And, church, if you remember that this idea that Jesus has a heart to specifically pray for his disciples and that he continues to come to the Father on their behalf eternally, the scripture says uh, specifically, he always lives to make intercession for them, which means he continues to come before the Father on our behalf. As this settles in, what it should do is it should, this knowledge should draw you to pray. When you realize that he is first praying for you, let that knowledge draw you to pray. Man, when you remember that he is praying for you, let that knowledge fortify your prayers when it feels like they are not doing a thing, when God is not hearing you. Remember that he has not forgotten you, but that he is in the process of praying to the Father for you, and that should encourage you, even when your emotions are saying, this is a waste of time, that cannot be because he is praying for you now. And then thirdly, let that knowledge Continue to keep you praying so that you never lose heart. Because you are on the heart of the Father and on the heart of the Son night and day. Is there any and stronger encouragement to pray? But the second reason that we should pray is because His power is what sustains our faith. It's his power that sustains our faith. So picking up in verse 11, we read this as Jesus prays. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So let's unpack this. What does that mean? He says, keep them in your name. What does it mean to be in your name? That's one of those things we say a lot in church. We, most of the time, we have no idea what that means. All right, so if I want to I open up that what this means, to be in your name. He has simply already said that he has revealed your name to your people and that they are now connected to that name by virtue of the fact that they have believed Right, that they are obeying, they are submitting, they are saying, I believe in the Father that you have revealed that you are his servant and I'm obeying and submitting to you. And so this idea of believing and being connected to the Father by virtue of faith is really at the heart of this idea of abiding in John 15. Remember, he tells us that we are called to abide in the vine, right? We're supposed to draw our strength, our life from this vine. And he's got a similar idea when he's talking about being in your name you are connected to the father you are united to him by faith and that all that is his is yours by faith so to keep you in your name is he's praying here that you would not depart from that that you would not be severed from that now i think what's interesting here is that oftentimes, really throughout John 13, 14, 15, his focus has been on calling the disciples to persevere. He's told them it's going to be hard. He's told them abide in me. He told them, hey, the Spirit's coming to help. He's told them, but he's been entirely focused on how they are called to persevere. Here, he looks and calls upon the Father to make sure that they don't walk away, that they don't give up, that they don't become disconnected and it's this idea that the reality of our staying abiding in the vine does not come from us the strength for that must come from God If Jesus is praying to the Father to keep them in his name, what he is saying is that they don't have the strength to do it unless the Father gives them the strength to do it, okay? And we see this play out in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. I'm just going to read verse 5 for us this morning where, where Peter outlines for them, and I think you've got it on the screen behind you, the full reality of the blessings that come to us in Christ, and that He says those are ours, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, by praying this, Jesus is showing that our need for the Father, our need for the Father to keep, to guard, and to hold on to us. Now, why do I want you to see this really clearly? I am somebody that believes in the perseverance of the saints, that if you get saved by Christ, He has you forever. And And yet at the same time, if that doctrine ever moves us to have confidence in ourselves or to not hit our knees in prayer, it is not doing what it's intended to do because it is intended to help you see that apart from the grace of God in Christ, you would walk away and you would be destroyed. You don't need Christ just to save you in the moment. You need Christ to keep you. You need the Father to sustain you. You see, I think what happens is that so far too many of us, and this happens when people disconnect themselves from all the means of grace. I, I'm amazed when I see people, they're not reading their Bible. They're not, they don't seem to be praying. They're not going to church anywhere. And they're like, well, I don't have to do those things in order to be saved. I was like, you're absolutely right. But what in the world do you think you are doing in helping yourself By putting yourself in a position where you are disconnecting yourself from the means of grace that God has given you to keep you in His fold, right? And at the same time, we sometimes operate like we're Peter, who says, "Like I'm never going to deny you, Lord," and yet what happened just a few verses later? You see, you and I need to recognize that if it is not for the grace of God in Christ, we would perish, we would walk away. And if that, you hear that, and that settles into your heart, it should move you to do one thing. Church, you must pray. Because all the grace of God is available in the strength of God and desires to be able to help you persevere. Jesus then goes on to explain that he kept them while he was on earth, but he's not going to do that any longer. That he's now... Giving that responsibility to the Father, because in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, I think one thing that's interesting about this is it seems to be disconnected with what came before, but why does Jesus here again talk about joy? He's been talking about the Father keeping them, but now he turns to the concept of Joy. What is this idea of joy? Why does he go here again? Specifically, he says that their joy, my joy will be fulfilled in themselves. And I think the reason for this, even though we want to maybe disconnect this from the idea of persevering, is because joyless Christians will not be persevering Christians. Joyless Christians will not be persevering Christians. You see, joyless Christians are weak Christians. Joyless Christians who are not full of praise, but empty of it, are susceptible to the temptations and the joys of the, of the world. Why? Because ultimately they are disconnected from the promises and the person and the power of Christ that is available to them. And I think I mention it here now this morning specifically because joy is an essential aspect of persevering faith. And we can have joy, if I understand the way this is written. Joy in the midst of trials, joy in the midst of suffering, joy that is completely independent of our immediate circumstances, but that kind of joy does not come from any other place than from God himself. You see, so many of us think that it is only from the circumstances that we are surrounded by that our joy comes. And then the moment our circumstances are not worthy of joy we end up in a situation that says, well, obviously God doesn't need me to have joy in this particular situation. But I think what he's saying here, even as he is praying, is Jesus is reminding them that there is more grace from the Father to be walking. The, the, the Father is going to guard you in strength. He is going to guard you. He is protect you to cry out to him. And at the same time, he is asking that they would ply the Father so that they could walk in joy. Because did you know that your perseverance in the faith is directly connected to the reality of the joy that you have in Jesus? So don't assume that just because you're not given up the walk yet, that God does not, or you're just grinning and bearing it, that God does not have more for you. He may want you to continue to pursue him in order to be able to walk in more joy. And I think that brings us to kind of our third and final point of encouragement to pray. And it's for this reason because he sanctifies you in truth. Because he sanctifies you in truth. You see, Jesus has already made very clear that his prayer is not for the world, but for his disciples. But now Jesus specifically focuses prayer on the relationship his disciples will have with the world. Beginning in verse 14, he says, I have given them, that's his disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's saying by virtue of his giving his word to his peoples, he has made them aliens and strangers. Did you realize that? That the church is not meant to be a people who just, well, we are like, we're like all these different things. And then we kind of tack on religion in here. And we've got like Christianity as a part of our overall identity. I am a, you know, a southern, white, da 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 Christian. Like when Jesus gets tacked onto you, when Jesus comes into you, he makes every other thing that you thought was relevant about your identity irrelevant. And he says, this is who you are now. And so you are a Christian, which means that you don't even belong in this world anymore. By virtue of him putting himself in you, you are to be just as foreign to the world as he was foreign to the world. He said, I didn't belong here. They didn't accept me. Guess what? If I'm in you, it's going to be the same because you have fundamentally changed. You are now an alien, a stranger, and an exile. And yet in the middle of all this, Jesus doesn't see this as a reason for me to like, time for me to hightail it out of the world, right? I'm gonna go sequester with my holy huddle over here, disconnected from the world. I'm actually called to be in the world even though I'm not of the world. He's calling me to not protect myself, insulate myself from all the people of the world. He's calling me to go into the world. And yet at the same time, he knows there's going to be this tension. They're in the world, but they're not supposed to be of the world. So what does he pray? He prays, Father, specifically, he said, do not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that he's praying for his believers, that they would never have hard times, that everything would go well for them? that they would have everything that they want, their best life now. Read Acts, right? It's clear that it doesn't play out that way. So what is he praying for? Well, it's here. If you listen to the word, you can actually see almost the exact same language when Jesus calls in the Lord's Prayer how they're to pray for themselves. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it's interesting, the Greek for evil and what Jesus is saying here, evil, the exact same word could be translated evil in a generic sense or could be translated evil personally like evil one. But what's clear is that by evil, he does not mean that they would never have anything bad happen to them, but that evil would begin to rule in their hearts. He is praying that they would not be lured away to their destruction by the enemy. He's praying that they would remain faithful, that they would remain pure, that they would actually grow in purity, that they would become less and less and less and less and less like the enemy, like the world, and they would become more and 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 more more like Jesus. And we know that's what he means because in verse 17 he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, what does that word sanctify mean? It's not a word we use today. It simply means this, to make holy. So Jesus is praying that God would continue to make his people more and more holy, not allowing them to be led into temptation and conformity to the world. How is that to happen? He says, in the truth. Where is this truth found? In the word, And there are two important points we need to see from this. First, that we are sanctified by the power of God. He says, Father, sanctify them. He's talking to the Father, which means the power comes from the Father in your truth. It is God who sanctifies his people. How do you get holiness inside of you? How do you become more holy? The power of God at work in you. Leviticus 22, 33 says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Which reminds us who we are to pray to, how we are to be dependent on him to sanctify us, to make us holy. I think the one thing that Christians have to remember is that they have no power in themselves to be more righteous that must flow from God and the more we are convinced of that there is nothing in me that's worthy of righteousness, nothing in me that can well it up and get righteous, that it must come from God, the more we will become a people of prayer. And secondly, he says, the means of our sanctification is the word of truth. He is praying that through the word, We, his people that he has left in the world in an unholy world, will be sanctified by it, transformed, set apart. As God's people live and work in an unholy world, the only source of sanctification is the pure, beautiful gospel message contained in the book that he has given once for all time. It is his word that washes over his people and sanctifies them. And if you disconnect sanctification from either the power of God, access through prayer, or the word of God that we have through the scriptures that we have in our hands, if you remove those two things, you have no power to be sanctified in an unholy world. And I promise you, you will be conformed to it. Because the more you grasp, the more it should move you to pray, to pray for more holiness to pray that we would be a sanctified people, to pray for the church in America, to pray for your own salvation, to pray for your own, excuse me, sanctification, your own progressive growth and godliness. And at the same time, the growth and godliness of your church, the growth and godliness of your brothers and sisters, of your family, the growth and godliness of the church in America, the growth and godliness of the saints at the end of the world, they need the power of God to be sanctified because they do not have it within themselves, only he has it. And secondly, it should call you to immerse yourself in truth. You see, the world has this corrosive, polluting, conforming effect on you. And I don't tell you that because I want you to be afraid of it. Or I want you to run away from it. Or I want you to be callous and feel like the problem's out there. But because I want to prepare you to run into it. And if you are going to be any good to the world, you're going to have to run into it with the reality of the power of God at work in you and the truth bringing and washing over you and sanctifying you. I love the way Paul writes in Romans 12 too. He helps us see that there's really just, it's, it's one or the other. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, what he's saying is that you have two options in this life. You are, as called apart, set apart Christians, going to be conformed to this world, or you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those are the two options that you have. And he is saying that in Christ, through the gospel, in faith, through his word, that you have the ability to be able to look to Christ and to walk increasingly free from sin, increasingly free from the corruptions and the conformity to this world as you continue to walk into this world to love it. So my hope, church, is simply that Jesus' prayer for his disciples has given you an urgency this morning to prayer, To pray. See, I feel like we settle too many times with like, I understand this, I understand that. Like, oh, I know I'm saved and I'm always going to be saved. Instead of understanding the, the desperate dependence that we have upon the power of God. And not wanting to take any hope or any joy or any any confidence having in ourselves and instead move into a place and a posture and a position where we pray, not because we're supposed to, because we know we need to. And again, I just want to started with a J.C. Ryle quote. And I want to finish with a J.C. Ryle quote. Answering the question, why should you continue to pray? Why should prayer be a regular part of your life? He says this, Prayer obtains fresh and continued outpourings of His Spirit. He alone begins the work of grace in a man's heart. He alone can carry it forward and make it prosper. But the good Spirit loves to be entreated. And those who ask most will have the most of His influence Let me say that again. Those who ask most will have the most of his influence. Prayer is the surest remedy against the devil and the besetting sins. The sin will never stand firm, which is heartily prayed against. The devil will never long keep dominion over us, which we beseech the Lord to cast forth. In other words, church, your God wants you to pray because there is so much more grace that he has and he desires to pour out on you that you may walk in this world and that you may become increasingly holy and that he may sustain your joy and your perseverance for his glory and your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you have done, Lord, in saving us. We don't ask, Lord, that you keep us out of this world but that you give us a heart and a hunger to grow into this world. And yet at the same time, Lord, we know that if you do not sustain us, if you do not give us your joy, if you do not give us your peace, if you do not continually sanctify us, if we don't cling to the word that you've given us, Lord, we will be no good in this world. And so we pray, Father, that you would call us and you would convict us and you would help us to see with absolute certainty, Lord, that we must come to you on our knees daily the grace that you would so readily give. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.